0: So this paper puts together some of the research that I've been doing on this question for the last uh, little bit. Um, Thank you for uh, coming uh, today. What makes a child's life go well? This paper examines two answers to this question. One presented by Wayne Sumner in his book, Welfare, Happiness and Ethics, and another found in Richard Kraut's book, What is Good and Why? The thesis of this paper is that neither view is entirely satisfactory. A more plausible view about the nature of children's welfare combines elements of both accounts. This paper is divided into five sections. The first examines possible reasons why philosophers have neglected to discuss children's welfare. The second outlines and evaluates Sumner's position. The third outlines and evaluates Kraut's position. The fourth sketches an account of children's welfare that rivals those discussed in the previous sections and the fifth section concludes. Section 1. A theory of welfare for children outlines what makes a child non-instrumentally better or worse off. More specifically, a theory of welfare provides an account of what makes a child's life go well for her from her perspective. That is, a theory of welfare is a theory of what is fundamentally, following Wayne Sumner and James Griffin, prudentially valuable or not for a child. In most philosophical discussions of welfare's nature, there is a near total absence of sustained discussions of children's welfare. This appears to be true of both canonical and contemporary work addressing welfare's nature. What might explain this neglect? One possible explanation is the belief that children cannot fare well. Uh, This seems to be Aristotle's view. So in the Nicomachean Ethics, he says... It is natural then that we call neither ox nor horse nor any other of the animals happy. For him, happiness is just welfare, for none of them is capable of sharing in virtuous activity. For this reason also, a boy or girl is not happy, for he is not yet capable of such acts, owing to his age. And boys who are called happy are being congratulated by reason of the hopes we have for them. Aristotle's argument is as follows. Welfare consists in activity in accordance with intellectual and moral excellences, roughly speaking. Children are incapable of activity in accordance with these kinds of excellences. Therefore, children cannot fare well. In describing them as faring well, we are congratulating them on having what we believe are rosy prospects. In reply, one might attack Aristotle's argument on the ground that it appeals to a controversial view of welfare, which emphasizes activity in accordance with various excellences. This would, however, require a detailed analysis of Aristotle's view. A more promising reply is simply to reject the argument's implicit premise, that there is only one way to fare well. It is possible that at least at some point during childhood, children fare well in a way that is different to adults. In this case, all that follows from Aristotle's argument is that children do not fare well as adults do. It does not follow that they do not fare well at all. Another attack on Aristotle's argument targets its conclusion. It is not true to the facts. First, it is not clear that when we hope that our child fares well, that we hope to have high hopes for our child. Second, it is not the case that when we describe a child as faring poorly, that this is entirely due to the fact that we think she has poor prospects in the future. We might believe that a child's life is not going well for her now because she has some kind of illness while believing that she has a very rosy future upon recovery. Perhaps philosophers have not paid attention to children's welfare because it is unnecessary to do so. Perhaps if you possess a view that fits the main welfare subject, the one that most people seem to be concerned with, adults in full possession of their intellectual and their physical abilities, you can arrive at a view about children's welfare. The strategy might be the same as that pursued in some work on the ethics of killing, where one first works out what makes killing an adult wrong, and then uses this account to determine what makes killing a child or a fetus wrong. There are, however, two reasons for thinking this is not a terribly fruitful way to develop a plausible theory of welfare for children. First, there is no reason to believe this strategy will lead one to a theory of welfare for children. So consider, for example, uh, John Rawls's theory of welfare. So he argues that an individual is faring well when, as he puts it, he is in the way of a successful execution, more or less, of a rational plan of life, drawn up under more or less favorable conclusions, conditions, Sorry, and he is reasonably confident that his plan can be carried through, end quote. It is far from obvious that we can get an account of faring well as a child from this view, for children do not form rational life plans or beliefs about them. Second, even if we could infer something about children's welfare from from this account, for example, that children fare well insofar as they are developing the powers and capacities to form and carry out rational plans of life, there is no reason to think that this furnishes us with a good theory of welfare for children it is more likely that the right theory will emerge from a keen assessment of the nature of a child, which would itself involve taking into account the changing and developing nature and point of view of a child. Finally, philosophers may not have developed theories of welfare for children because it is obvious what it consists in. R.B. Brandt rather confidently maintains that happiness consists in net enjoyment or surplus enjoyment alone, and that, quote, Obviously, in the case of children, animals, and mental defectives, we want to make them happy and avoid distress. End quote. He is clear that this is all we want for them. In his discussion of what constitutes a valuable life for a child, the political philosopher Colin MacLeod simply asserts that faring well in childhood is the same as quote, a happy childhood, filled with plenty of fun and amusement, and which is, on balance, pleasant. End quote. However, it is unobvious that surplus enjoyment is the only thing that makes a child's life go well. Indeed, the two views that form the focus of this paper disagree. There is, then, no reason not to directly tackle the question with which we began. The next two sections discuss two views about the nature of children's welfare. Section 2. In Welfare, Happiness and Ethics, Wayne Sumner argues that welfare consists in surplus authentic happiness. The happiness of an informed and autonomous individual. The view's core notion is that of happiness. He equates this with, following many psychologists, life satisfaction, which has two components: a cognitive component and an affective component. The cognitive component involves what Sumner calls "quote a positive evaluation of the conditions of your life," a judgment that, on balance, it measures up favorably against your standards. Or your expectations end quote one might make this judgment about part of one's life for example one's friendships or one's marriage or about one's life as a whole putting together all of its parts the effective component involves quote what we commonly call a sense of well-being finding your life enriching or rewarding or feeling satisfied or fulfilled by it end quote both components of life satisfaction or happiness involve judging the first, about how well one's life or part of one's life lives up to one's standards or expectations, and second, about one's experience of one's life under those conditions. Summer does not equate welfare with happiness, for it is possible for it to be inauthentic. This occurs when an individual's happiness does not accurately, as he puts it, reflect her own priorities or her own point of view, end quote. One's happiness fails to do this when one is misinformed about the conditions of one's life, That is, when one lacks information and or when one's expectations are, as he puts it, influenced by autonomy subverting mechanisms of social conditioning, such as indoctrination, programming, brainwashing, role scripting, and the like. Sumner instead equates welfare with authentic happiness one's happiness is authentic and therefore reflects one's point of view when one's judgments about it are informed and autonomous. That is, on his view, when one possesses all of the information that one considers to be relevant to one's ju- one's judgment, uh, sorry, one's effective responses to the conditions of one's life, and when the standards governing one's life are based on autonomy-preserving socialization processes, ones which don't... Ones which ones which do not erode the individual's capacity for critical assessment of his values, including the very values promoted by that process itself. On this view, one is faring well when one has a surplus of authentic happiness. Sumner holds that this view is not applicable to young children, for they are incapable in his view of making the judgments associated with happiness's cognitive component. He neglects to mention another equally plausible reason that his view is not fit for young children. He repeatedly stresses that his ambition is to locate a theory of welfare on which, quote, the subject's point of view on her life is authoritative for determining when her life is going well for her, end quote. He claims more forcefully that a proper theory of welfare holds that an individual is faring well when her life is in accord with her Quote unquote, own deepest priorities. This cannot be the aim of a theory of welfare for young children. They possess neither authoritative points of view nor deep priorities. These emerge only later in childhood, and only then do they appear to be relevant to welfare. In light of their cognitive limitations, Sumner equates young children's welfare with effective happiness. A child's life is going well on this view when it contains, on balance, more effective happiness. Than unhappiness. That is, when it contains a surplus of satisfaction or fulfillment. What is non-instrumentally good for a child is finding her life satisfying, and what is non-instrumentally bad for a child is finding her life dissatisfying. A child is faring well when her life is on balance satisfying to her. Now, Sumner arrives at this view by first outlining an account of welfare for adults determining the elements of the view that apply to young children given their capacities and abilities, and then by concluding that the elements of the view that apply to children determine their welfare. This strategy leaves him open to an objection that he thinks devastates arrival. Sumner rejects hedonism about the nature of welfare in part by sorry, Sumner rejects hedonism of the nature of welfare on the way to defending his own uh, account for adults. He thinks that Robert Nozick's experienced machine objection to it is the only one that is decisive. Briefly, this objection supposes that scientists have invented a machine that is able to provide those who enter it with what for them constitute the most intense and robust positive experiences. While in the machine, they would believe that they are doing the sorts of things that they are experiencing, for example, hiking, arguing, loving, or whatever... While one may be fearful about plugging in once one does, one will not know that what one is experiencing is not real. If we accepted hedonism, this would be considered the life with the highest welfare. However, most of us dissent from this. We think that we would not fare well inside such a machine. The difficulty is that this objection appears to be equally successful against Sumner's own view of children's welfare. Remember, on this view, how well a child's life goes depends exclusively on her experience of her life including everything from, as Sumner puts it, bare contentment to deep fulfillment. This follows from the equation of welfare with surplus effective happiness or with feeling happy on balance. The more surplus satisfaction a child has, the more welfare she has. But imagine now an effective happiness machine that is capable of providing a child with a high degree of satisfaction. Once connected to the machine, the child would believe that her experiences were real when in fact they were not. Suppose that the machine gives her more happiness on balance than she can otherwise acquire in reality. If Sumner's view of welfare for children is correct, it seems that a child will be faring well as she could if she plugged into this machine. Sumner thinks that the experience machine objection is decisive against hedonism. In my view, this judgment contains a high degree of plausibility. He should therefore regard it as decisive against his view of children's welfare. If the objection gives him and us conclusive reason to abandon hedonism, it should give him and us conclusive reason to abandon the happiness theory of children's welfare. But perhaps this conclusion is too hasty. Sumner might suggest in reply that my argument assumes what is not true, that the experience machine objection is as powerful in the case of of young children as it is in the case of adults. It might be that the experience machine objection provides us with a reason for thinking that purely experiential views of welfare are inappropriate for adults, but that it does not provide us with a reason for thinking that such views are inappropriate for young children. Sumner might point out in his defense that we appear to willfully delude young children in order to make them happy. For example, To make them happy, we appear to delude them into thinking that a benevolent old man residing in the North Pole will give them gifts, provided they refrain from pouting and crying. He might add that this is not something we do only infrequently. Consider the myths of the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and so on. We do not seem to think that the happiness derived from these delusions fails to make children better off. So we have less reason to regard the initial objection as powerful in this case. Sumner might be right about this. But this is insufficient to completely deflect the experience machine objection. We might think that some happiness based on illusion contributes to welfare, in children at least, while rejecting the claim that the happy life in the machine, which is of course based on radical and widespread delusion, is one in which a young child is faring well. Sumner needs an argument to move us all the way to the experience machine from the fact that we accept that illusory happiness sometimes contributes to children's welfare. In addition, he needs to rule out that these delusions are encouraged in order not to produce just happiness, but happiness taken in things that appear to be worthy of happiness, for example, active play or time with those with whom we have valuable and meaningful relationships. It might be that we decide which illusory happiness matters to welfare by reference to some inventory of things we think worthy of happiness. There is, however, another tack that Sumner might take to convince us that the experienced machine is less powerful in the case of young children. He thinks that there are two reasons why it would not be good for one to plug into the machine, and therefore two reasons for rejecting hedonism. The first is that hedonism, as he puts it, overrides the authority of welfare subjects to determine for themselves which goods they will choose to pursue in their lives, End quote. According to hedonism, life inside the machine is the best on offer even if it is not the life that one would endorse. The second is that hedonism is, quote, too interior and solipsistic to provide a descriptively adequate account of the nature of welfare, end quote. According to hedonism, only one's experiences are relevant to one's welfare, despite the fact that things other than experiences seem to be non-instrumentally relevant to welfare the first reason is likely not why we think that it is not good for a young child to plug into a machine this is because a young child is not autonomous being plugged into a machine would not violate her authority to choose to determine which goods to pursue in her life she is not presumed to have such authority however the second reason likely is at least a reason that we think it would not be good for a child to be plugged into a machine Such an existence does seem to be too interior and solipsistic to capture what matters to a young child's welfare. But Sumner might argue that on reflection, the first reason really is the only powerful reason to reject hedonism. This explains why the experienced machine objection is more powerful in the case of adults than in the case of children. This reply will not suffice for two reasons. First, it is not clear that the two reasons that Sumner lists can be easily separated. For the second, general claim explains the first, more particular claim. It is because purely experientialist views are solipsistic that they undermine one's authority to decide what to do with one's life. However, second, even if we could put this aside, Sumner would require a compelling rationale for thinking his first reason is the reason to reject experientialist views of welfare. He would have to show that violation of one's autonomy to determine what values to pursue in her life is the only reason one might have for thinking that one would not be faring well in the machine. Sumner might insist on this or be predisposed toward this because he thinks a theory of welfare must, as he puts it, quote, preserve individual autonomy, end quote. This is, of course, highly plausible when thinking about a theory of welfare for adults. But why should it be the only thing to consider in thinking about welfare for other welfare subjects? Once we recognize the range of and differences between welfare subjects, it is less obvious that the aim of arriving at a proper theory that preserves individual autonomy constrains our thinking about the reasons for rejecting experientialist views of welfare for all welfare subjects. Indeed. When thinking about young children's welfare, it is hard not to think that there are different but equally plausible reasons for objecting to experientialist views, such as that they interfere with a child taking happiness in actual play and or in actual loving relationships, which of course the experience machine objection makes abundantly clear. I conclude then that Sumner has not been able to provide us with a reason to accept the power of the experience machine in the case of adults, but not in the case of children. He is right to think that this is a decisive blow to hedonism. His own view of children's welfare is susceptible to the objection. Therefore, he and us, he and we should reject it. How might we avoid the implausible implications of his view? We should not, in my view, abandon it completely. He is right that there is an important truth in hedonism. Quote, that nothing can make our lives better, sorry, nothing can make our lives go better or worse unless it somehow affects the quality of our experience. End quote. He is also right that the best way to express this truth is to argue that happiness counts as a necessary condition of welfare, effective happiness. This assures us that we have a non-arbitrary view of what counts as relevant to an individual's prudential value. The most plausible departure from Sumner's theory involves supplementing it with the imposition of a value requirement on a young child's life. On this view, a child is faring well when she is happy and she is taking part in what is worthy of happiness. Placing a value requirement on welfare is more plausible than adopting a rational or fully informed or actual desire satisfaction view of welfare for children. It is difficult to see how the rational desire satisfaction theory would work in the case of children. So young children, for example, lack the ability to appreciate and sort information in the way that some versions of the Uh, fully informed desire satisfaction work. In addition, it's not clear how a child can be both fully informed in the way envisioned by the view and retain the thing that seems most relevant to her welfare, namely her unique perspective on the world. The actual desire theory is no better. In order for it to make sense of a young child's welfare, we would need to see the full hierarchy of her preferences. We might find a robust one of these in older children and in adults, but not clearly in young children who typically do not have well-developed and stable preference hierarchies Mm -hmm. to which we can appeal. In general, young children's desires do not seem to be authoritative or stable enough to be the full story about their welfare. We should then supplement Sumner's view of children's welfare with a value requirement. I have not yet fleshed this idea out. One might ask, what would such a requirement look like? Kraut's view appears to supply an answer. Okay, section three. Sumner does not devote sustained attention to children's welfare. This is not true of Kraut. Thoughts about it are at the center of what is good and why, and also earlier work. He holds that, quote, a theory about what is good for human beings should be tested in part by seeing whether it plausibly explains what makes something good for an individual when he is a young child, end quote. He goes further in thinking that, quote, it will not do to have one conception of what it is for something to be good For an adult human being, and a different conception of what it is for something to be good for a human infant. With this in mind, Kraut develops what he calls developmentalism, which he argues is applicable to all humans, non-human animals, and to plants. Applied to humans, the claim, the account claims broadly that a human being is faring well when she is flourishing, and that she is flourishing when she is enjoying or taking pleasure in the actual development or exercise of her physical social, sensory, cognitive, and affective capacities, or powers. As Kraut puts it, a flourishing human being is one who possesses, develops, and enjoys the exercise of cognitive, affective, sensory, and social powers, no less than physical powers. He intends this to be an explanatory theory. It explains why a certain state of affairs, G, is good for an individual human being, S. Kraut thinks it has the power more importantly to explain why different things are good for different human beings at different stages in their life and development it does this in part by focusing on the nature of humans crowd therefore defends a hybrid view of welfare hedonism he thinks like sumner contains an important truth that quote nothing can be non-instrumentally good for someone if it does not if it does not if he does not enjoy or take pleasure in it end quote The development of a power or capacity in the absence of pleasure or enjoyment is not good for an individual. The same is true of an episode of pleasure or enjoyment experienced in the absence of an actual development of a power. A state of affairs, G, then, is good for a human being, S, then, just in case it involves both enjoyment or pleasure in and the actual exercise of S's psychological and physical powers. There is otherwise no flourishing. (coughs) This aspect of Kraut's view needs to be emphasized. He says at one point, for example, that, quote, rational willing, self-legislation, and freedom are indeed good for us, end quote. He can't, strictly speaking, say this. These things are for him, not by themselves good for us in the absence of pleasure. To avoid ambiguity, Kraut would benefit from employing different language when discussing the powers he thinks relevant to welfare. He should not refer to these things as good for us, He should instead refer to these as powers or capacities that are worthy of pleasure or enjoyment. This will help avoid confusion. There is another reason the change in language is important. Kraut argues that the desire theory is defective because it holds that desire satisfaction in the absence of enjoyment is good for one. Were Kraut to argue, for example, that self-legislation is good for us, then he would have to concede that one's life goes better when one is self-legislating, even if one does not enjoy this he too would then be impugned by this powerful worry about the desire theory and also about the objective list theory. On the issue of young children's welfare, Kraut's view is more plausible than Sumner's for three reasons. First, Kraut argues that faring well as a young child involves both enjoyment and the actual exercise of powers. His view, therefore, avoids the experience machine objection, among other objections to experientialist views. Second, on the face of it, Kraut's view captures many of our intuitions about what faring well as a young child involves. His view seems to explain why some of the things thought to be good for young children are, in fact, good for them, including exploration, curiosity, imagination, the acquisition of language and the use of one's senses, sexual maturation, acquisition of skills for use in adulthood, and honesty. He can explain these things by reference to the idea that they evolve at least sometimes the enjoyable use of one's powers or uh, capacities. Third, Kraut can make sense of the idea that what is good for an individual may depend partly on her stage in life. Sumner's view is much too crude in this regard. His theory of welfare sees individuals either as young children or as autonomous adults. This ignores the fact that older children, for example adolescents, may fare well in a way that is different to both adults and young children. Adolescents are an possession of a will to a much greater extent than young children, though some of my personal evidence dictates against this, but to a lesser extent than adults, and this surely makes a difference to their welfare. Kraut can make sense of this in a way that Sumner cannot. Despite these virtues, Kraut's view faces several serious criticisms. The first targets the claim that pleasure or enjoyment is a necessary condition of faring well. He does not distinguish between these two states of mind pleasure and enjoyment which he treats as things which have distinct sensations. This generates a view that is too narrow. It seems obvious to me at least that a child might fare well when feeling neither pleasure nor enjoyment. For example, a child might be faring well even though she is merely satisfied or contented with drawing or playing with a game with her brother. She might be faring well even though she is simply feeling glad to be or absorbed in holding her mother's hand while on a walk. It is wrong to think that in these cases, just because enjoyment or pleasure is absent, that a child is not faring well. In his discussion of ill fare or unflourishing as he calls it, Kraut notices that a great number of feelings are bad for us, including physical pain, constant fear, nausea, excessive anger, extreme cold, and so on. This generates a reasonably plausible view of ill-fair. But even here, Kraut's view is too narrow. He focuses mostly on the most powerful of feelings. This does not leave room for the plausible thought, in my view, that a child fares poorly despite experiencing nothing like these feelings, suffering or or, uh, pain. Even mildly negative feelings might make a child worse off. A child might be faring poorly when she is merely feeling glum or down or experiencing ennui. Kraut can deflect these worries by divesting himself of pleasure or enjoyment and pain and the rest of the feelings that are negative in his account of welfare and ill fare, and substituting for them Sumner's notions of happiness or satisfaction and unhappiness or dissatisfaction. The notions of satisfaction and dissatisfaction, happiness, unhappiness, are broader than Count's no- th- broader than Kraut's notions. Therefore, they're able to capture a much broader range of affect, including everything from bare contentment, discontentment, to deep fulfillment or deep despair. Relying on satisfaction in one's account of welfare allows one to better capture intuitions about the sorts of positive experiences that seem relevant to welfare, like contentment. Relying on the notion of dissatisfaction allows one to do the same with respect to negative feelings. Since these notions capture all the feelings that are relevant to welfare and illfare, including Kraut's, they are better situated to play the role in welfare that Kraut envisions for pleasure and his class of negative feelings. There is also another reason to rely on Sumner's notion of happiness or unhappiness, satisfaction or dissatisfaction, in an account of young children's welfare. It permits the child's perspective to play some role in his or her welfare. As noted, Sumner's conception of effective happiness involves a judgment about the effective conditions of one's life. It seems important that we find some place or role in a theory of welfare for a child, for a child's perspective, and her judgment about how things are going effectively for her. We do ask children what we think will be better for them, and we do take this judgment to be at least relevant to their welfare. Kraut might resist this amendment to his view, on the grounds that Sumner's notion of happiness is too complex to apply to children. As Sumner characterizes it, effective happiness contains a number of quite sophisticated concepts, including those of reward, enrichment, and fulfillment. It is not clear that very young children, at least, have the capacity to judge that they find their lives fulfilling or rewarding. Some such judgments might well be beyond the capacity of young children. But in reply, one can argue that all that is needed is a Thin notion of satisfaction requiring no more than a child have a slight capacity for some kind of judgment about the effective conditions of her life. It is not unrealistic in my view to think that even very young children can make some assessment of the effective conditions of parts of their life, though of course not presumably their life as a whole. The final worries, too, pertain to the claim that the actual development of one's powers or capacities is a necessary condition of welfare. The first of these worries pertains to the treatment of love. It is highly plausible to think that faring well as a young child involves taking happiness in the love of a parent or guardian, among others. When a child is happy being taken care of, comforted, and emotionally nurtured by a parent, it is good for her. However, it is not clear that Kraut's view can make sense of this thought in a plausible fashion. His discussion of love is concerned mainly with the value of loving to the individual who does the loving, When he does discuss the value of being loved to the person being loved, all he says is that, quote, the good of receiving love must be understood as what one has when one perceives with pleasure that one is loved. He's worried about cases where you're dead and you're loved. He thinks in that case, that's not good for you. This is not wrong exactly, in my view. It's just not clear that any desirable capacity on the part of the individual child being loved is in any way being exercised or actually developed. Kraut does talk about perception, and perhaps this is the power that is employed, in love that is good for one. This, however, is an odd reason for thinking that being loved is good for a young child. He also refers to the idea that in being loved, one is exercising the capacity of being open to being loved. This is not implausible, but it too seems not quite to capture why love is prudentially valuable for a young child. The prudential value of love has little to do with the fact that in being loved enjoyably, a young child exercises her capacity or power, uh, perception or openness. Instead, it seems to have everything to do with what a child receives in being loved, someone ministering to her needs, vanquishing her fears, improving her life prospects, and so on. In requiring the notion of development to play a role in what is good for a child, Kraut's view misses this important. We we don't need his view to explain what's important about love, and so far as we do, we get the wrong answer in my view. The final worry about Kraut's view is that it generates implausible outcomes. Suppose a child takes a great degree of enjoyment or happiness in developing his powers of detecting the odors of different weeds. He spends his free time walking through various gardens and fields, sniffing the weeds that he encounters. Or suppose a child takes a great degree of pleasure in enhancing and strengthening his eyesight using exercises given to him by an optometrist. In both cases, he takes a great degree of enjoyment in actually exercising and developing his sensory mobilities, one of the powers that Kraut focuses on. It seems implausible to claim that merely as a consequence of developing his sensory modalities that a child is faring well. But Kraut's view seems to imply the opposite conclusion. One way in which Kraut may reply to this worry is to treat these forms of development in the same way that he treats the acquisition of wealth and the pursuit of fame. He thinks that on reflection, the acquisition of wealth and the pursuit of fame are things which we see lack value or they are things that we see to have nothing to recommend them. This strikes me as correct, as right. The difficulty with this reply for Kraut is that it risks making the appeal to the development of powers and capacities irrelevant to determining prudential value of these and other items. We can do it without reliance on the developmentalist picture. No doubt in response, Kraut will accuse me of misunderstanding his view. The correct structure of the view, he will tell me, can be gleaned by seeing his attempt to deal with the existence of what he calls destructive powers, which of course we all have. Children, as all no doubt know, have the power to be extraordinarily cruel. Imagine that a child has and puts to use the power of insulting and intimidating children to whom she's taken a disliking. If she enjoys this and it involves the actual exercise of a power, then it seems that Kraut has to admit that this is good for a child. He avoids this, he says, by pointing out that developmentalism does not move from claims about what enjoyable development of one's powers consist in, Two claims about what is good for one. Instead, rather, the view holds that we first discover what is good for an individual, first discover that, and only then do we move back to explain why it is so. About the things that are good for us, he says, that according to his developmentalist picture, Quote, the best explanation of their goodness consists in the way they involve the enjoyable use of our bodies, senses, emotions, and intellect. So we first figure out what's good for us, and then we move back to this developmentalist idea. This is, however, a puzzling reply. It seems to involve admitting that the appeal to the development of one's powers has no explanatory force, thereby making it odious. But it does appear that if Kraut wants the appeal to the enjoyable use of one's powers to have some role in his theory, and that's how it gets him a plausible, in my view, plausible view of children's welfare, then he'll have to admit that what he says cannot rule out the cruel child is bearing well, since she is enjoyably using her powers. Kraut might attempt a different reply. He sometimes claims that what his position involves is the appeal not simply to the enjoyable use of powers to explain what is good for children. Rather, he says, quote, developmentalism proposes that we can achieve some insight into what is good for us by tracing development, and that means healthy development, of a human being over the course of a lifetime. The important notion here, missing from most descriptions of the view, is that of healthy. It does all the work in determining which enjoyable uses of powers is good for a child and which not. However, again, this leads away from the explanatory element of developmentalism to the search for things that are healthy for a child, or to use Krauts words, to what has merit for a child. There is, after all, an important difference between appealing to enjoyable healthy development and enjoyable development sans phrase. The second of these cannot rule out the sorts of cases that Kraut wants to rule out and that I have pressed on him. The first can, but only by making the appeal to the actual development of powers explanatorily impotent. Kraut might be right that this is not just the enjoyable use of powers that matters to welfare, but instead the enjoyable use of healthy powers that matters to welfare. But this takes us beyond developmentalism to the idea of what is healthy or meritorious. This does not presuppose developmentalism, rather developmentalism depends on and presupposes it. So, in order to make sense of what is good for a child, we must then move to an account of what is healthy or what in the words that I have been using is worthy of happiness or satisfaction. That is, we must move beyond developmentalism. Section four. My position on children's welfare combines elements of the views discussed above. This is very sketchy, I'm afraid to say. Sumner is right that happiness is a necessary condition on children's happiness. I tried to articulate that by arguing that it's broad enough to capture all of the affect that is relevant to children's welfare. He is wrong to think that it is sufficient. Kraut is wrong to think that it is pleasure rather than happiness that is a necessary condition. That's too narrow. He is right to think that there is a value requirement in happiness, but wrong to think that referring to powers and capacities is the best way to make sense of it. My task in what remains then is to make sense of the things that comprise the value requirement placed on a child's welfare, a young child's welfare. At the outset it is important to confront one difficulty with articulating a theory of this variety. There is a great degree of variability amongst the individuals who form the category children. A 15 or 16 year old has more in common with an adult than she has, than she or he has with the average two or three or four or five year old. But they are all children. This stands in striking contrast to the relative uniformity amongst those who make up the relative uniformity of those who make up the class of individuals referred to as autonomous adults. The fact is that most children, unlike most adults, are in the process of developing through most of their lives. A theory of welfare should reflect this fact, but it is difficult to do so with any kind of accuracy because these are nebulous categories. So what I'm going to try to do is make some progress by working out a view applicable to what I'll call young children only. I think adolescents are a different case. Maybe they have, uh, uh, maybe they're a view that would be somewhere between what's plausible for adults and children would be appropriate uh, for them. In his discussion of welfare, Thomas Scanlon outlines what he calls fixed points that any plausible theory of welfare should include. My conjecture is that the following fixed points belong in any theory of welfare for children. Together with happiness, these can explain why the things that Kraut claims are good for children are in fact good for them. Either non-instrumentally, for example, imagination, exploration, friendship, love, curiosity, and maturation. Or instrumentally, for example, acquisition of language, use of one's senses, honesty, and so on. These are things, that is the first category of things, that are worthy of happiness. So the first of these is valuable relationships. The relationships that are worthy of satisfaction or happiness for children are first loving, engaging relationships with adults, for example, a parent, caregiver, grandparent, and so on, with whom the child is closely bonded. These should take on a particular shape. They need not be based on complete reciprocity or on robust attitudes of equal concern and respect, which we might Ask for in friendships between adults, though they should involve the child recognizing the adult as a benevolent authority figure. They should involve the child being loved by a caregiver or parent, where this involves a life shaping desire on the part of the caregiver to nurture and guide the child by means of reasonable moral principles. It should involve a deep desire to engage and support and love the child for her own sake and to provide the child with an environment in which to express him or herself honestly and in which the child can develop the skills for success in later life. It need not include complete candidness on the part of the adult. Another set of relationships that are worthy, for satisfaction, worthy of satisfaction for children is valuable friendships with other children, including siblings and uh, other relations. It is hard to characterize these in any sort of detail, they can take on a variety of forms. The ones that seem most worthy of happiness, however, are those involving children in processes of socialization, for minimal forms of cooperation, and minimal forms of communication. They should include they should most likely exclude any sort of robust sexual activity, though they need not exclude physical intimacy entirely. Such relationships seem to be worthy of satisfaction even when they last only for short periods of time and even if they are largely at the discretion of a child's parent. A second thing worthy of happiness for a young child is intellectual activity, the use and development of one's intellectual abilities. This should not simply be equated with the acquisition of knowledge, which may be entirely passive in nature or possess only utilitarian value. What matters is intellectual striving, or what I'll call that, growth and expansion. This encompasses a broad range of things, including curiosity, learning, artistic activity and creation, understanding, appreciation, reasoning, and so on, at least at some minimal level. It is important that we do not think that intellectual activity is worthy of satisfaction only because it is relevant to or connected with success in one's rational aims in the future, whatever those happen to be. It can be good for a child to happily develop his aesthetic appreciation and abilities, even when this has little or no impact on later life. The final item is that of play. What is of particular importance is the sort of play that is unstructured and spontaneous and that need not involve any of the other things that are worthy of happiness. It might involve playing with friends, animals or one's parents, domestic animals. It might be focused on a game that is directed by the child and not by the adults who are caring for the child. The basic idea is that is what is worthy of happiness or satisfaction for a child is to be free from what Moore Schlick describes as purposes such as the development of one's intellect or some talent. This is, in Schlick's view, the essence of play. Quote, free, purposeless action, that is action which in fact carries its purpose within itself. End quote. This is a pursuit that is distinct from those that concern intellectual activity and any other ability connected with future success in one's ambitions. There is also another form of play that is worthy of happiness. This is the sort of thing that John Stuart Mill says he lacked in his childhood. Quote, the accomplishments which schoolboys in all countries chiefly cultivate, end quote. Mill is referring primarily to physical activities involving, quote, feats of skill or capital P, physical strength, end quote. and quote, unquote, ordinary bodily exercises. The free use of one's physical abilities for no purpose or goal, for example, by playing in a park, swimming on one's back, swinging on a swing, or riding a bike is something that is worthy of satisfaction for a child. My view is that when these are objects of satisfaction or when a child finds herself pursuing or employing one of these things and the child finds it satisfying or it produces happiness for her, this is prudentially good for a child. When a child has a surplus of satisfaction or happiness in what is worthy of her life, sorry, what, what is worthy of happiness, her life is going well for her. Conclusion. This paper has been devoted to evaluating two views of children's welfare. I argued that neither Sumner's nor Kraut's view is satisfactory. Both views do contain a kernel of truth. Sumner has the right attitudinal component. Kraut has the right idea that we need a value requirement on children's welfare. I have hoped to try to capture this in the view of welfare that I've defended, according to which a child is faring well when she is both happy and in the possession of something that is worthy of happiness.
1: Thank you.
2: Questions? So so I I had one. Um, So I think it's 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 quite plausible that if you're engaging in these valuable activities uh, and and are enjoying them, your life is going well. But in the case of children, there's so many times where they don't actually enjoy engaging in a valuable activity, so, you know, I, I have to force my children to go mountain bike riding, and, and a lot of the time they don't enjoy it, uh, and, and I think that's still nonetheless they're doing well, even though at, at that point they may not be enjoying it. Now, of course, it's, if they never enjoy it, it's arguably not a, a valuable activity for them, but I, I, th- I think it may be too much to say that it's necessary for something to be valuable for a child to to, for that activity to be you know, making their life go better.
0: So, the idea is that you would say, even if they experienced no satisfaction whatsoever yeah. in the mountain biking. I mean, a lot, lot,
2: lot of the things with young children are forcing them into activity. It's
0: very hard to make them farewell, yes. And, indeed. You
2: know, unless you force them <laughs> to, to yeah. do something, even right. unstructured play might be something that children will resist today. It's true, yeah. And, so, and so you have, you know, part of dealing with children is actually inflicting unhappiness on them. Uh, that is true, yes. So but on your on your account, their life isn't going well at that point because they're not happy.
0: That's right. So we might justify that on the grounds that though it comes at a cost of their well-being, it may be useful for them in the future. Look, their adulthood is very long. They might need to require skills to enjoy themselves then. That would be plausible in my view. But as you said, if they didn't ever enjoy, enjoy it, then that wouldn't be good for them. But at what point is is it the case that they're no longer enjoying it? After a long period where they're not... In, not, not sorry, where they at what point are they not faring well? After a long period of doing it and not enjoying it, or a short period?
2: Well, I mean, that's, we have to resolve that issue. Yeah. I think it makes sense to say that their life can be going well, even though for a, for a fairly, fairly reasonable period they're not enjoying that particular activity. Their life would be going even better if they also right. enjoyed it. I mean, otherwise, doing these hours of violin practice or hours of, of developing any sort of skill or talent... I mean, a lot of life is, <laughs> is not that... I mean, not, I, we used to go surfing. You go surfing ten times. Nine times, it's not particularly enjoyable. Oh. It's just trapping waves. You just do it. It's cold. It's you don't want to go. And it's not as if you really enjoy it, but the tenth time you really enjoy it. And I think yeah. a lot of childhood is like that. I mean, long yeah, long long. no, I agree
0: with that. So I think the par- part of what your, your obligations as a parent is to help them try to find out what makes them fare well. And so this might mean that you have to put them into positions where you think they'll do something which will eventually, at some point issue in, well, in welfare, but which is not when they're doing it, issuing in right. welfare. So um, you think at I'm, that
2: point their life isn't going well when they're doing the, the, the sort of it, unpleasant violin training?
0: And it would have to be the case that they would be doing instrumental, uh, things that are instrumentally good to their to their welfare. Right. Um, I mean, so you, you raise this issue of whether the sort of hybrid accounts that, that, that I'm interested in defending, you know, are accounts of the highest well-being or the, or the accounts of just uh, uh, sorry, accounts uh, uh, of highest well-being or just well-being yeah. uh, per se. So you might say, look, a little bit of physical exercise doesn't count that much, but it counts for something even in the absence of yeah. happiness. Yeah. And when the happiness is done with the activity, well, then we have the highest yeah. kind of thing. So I wanted to resist that partly because uh, my my thought is that um, you know just the acquisition of these goods in the absence of any kind of interest on them doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that um, makes them farewell and you might give other explanations for why you would do you could capture it in other kinds of ways it's good for them when they're adults yeah. uh, it, it's good for them so that they can enjoy themselves you know later things of this nature uh, I think you had
3: a question yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh,
3: I think you're right uh, I think some of us right uh, that there is a greater objection to putting adults in, in experience than children and I think the reason for that is that in virtue, or because of their limited cognitive capacities, children are inevitably, inescapably deluded. Uh, so, but there still seems to be some objection to putting children on the experience machine. But I'm not convinced of about how much of this objection comes from the fact that that is necessary for children to develop their potentialities. So suppose we <coughs> suppose we're putting it, children on a sort of an experience <coughs> shape, which gives them illusory experiences, which is which are pleasant, but are also very good, optimal for their development of their cognitive faculties. Mm. Mm. And suppose that when children are on this Experience machine. They could at the same time engage in, in physical activities like running, swinging, or whatever. Only they would experience as much more enjoyable than it in fact is, and then they would <coughs> emerge from the experience machine at some age, and they would be sort of uh, better, and they would fun- function better as adults that they would have done if they'd had an ordinary um, upbringing. And it would also be more pleasurable for them. But they would be deluded most of the time, or all of the time, but deluded in a way which enhances their cognitive faculties. Now, would there be something wrong about
0: that? So the idea would be that they would be active, (laughs) unlike in the sort of initial example. So they would be doing things that are physically, intellectually... Yeah, I don't
3: active okay. it's great
0: okay. and so the idea we're is running. it seemed to me that what you were arguing was that they could take some kind of thing that would enhance their experience to a certain degree and you know wouldn't detract from any of the types of activities that would be absent in the in the experience machine so in the face of that I'm not clear that there would be anything wrong with it because it would sound like it's just sort of a slightly better version of real life
3: but they, they, would be, uh, they would be having delusory experiences. Uh, the whole entire they would be delusory. All, all the time, but they would, have, they would be having illusions that are A, pleasurable, yes. be very good for their cognitive devel- right. development and other types of That's what I imagine.
0: So it would be a machine that would first of all give you pleasure, and then second of all enhance your cognitive. And it would be yeah. best make your right. life sort right. of
3: intrinsically good in respect of pleasure. And it would be instrumentally good in the sense that yeah. it would produce... <laughs> so I would want to say that it might
0: be so instrumentally beneficial for the future, but I'm not sure it would be beneficial for the the individual child, g- given the illusory. But also, how, it's, it's unclear to me how the thing would work to get the physical activities... Busy. I mean, you're just... It's, it's not, so it's not as though they're, the, the, the intellectual abilities they're developing are ones that they're you know having now, and then they'll realize themselves in the future it's sort of like you're saying well they'll have all these illusory experiences that will in the future ex- produce these kinds of ex- is that the idea? Yes yeah.
3: what, well the idea is I'm not sure on how they the initial they example would have say they would mm-hmm. be on an educational program this educational program would be very them, and it would also stimulate a cognitive or whatever sensory intellectual abilities factor, yeah in an optimal way So they would be be sort of function better as adults, but it it would be illusory experience. Uh They wouldn't be in contact with reality most of the time, or perhaps all of the time. So So, so the the thing I'm getting at is I I, I feel that a lot of the objection to putting children on experience machine comes not from the fact that they're out of... with realities and so on as adults, uh-huh. but from the fact that it would have bad effect on their development. Uh-huh. So what I'm supposing is yes. yeah. you're putting yeah. in on an experience machine which deludes them, but is intu-
0: instrumentally good for them. Uh, so that's... So But you're saying on my account it would fall that it's also non-instrumentally good for them? Uh,
3: no, I didn't, I didn't okay. say... I didn't say that. I'm not sure I, I understood all the uh-huh. details of the Oracle. I was just sort of uh, trying to tease out uh, what is wrong about uh, uh, putting a child on, on an experience machine yeah. and what you could do yeah. to, to sort of uh, uh, remove it. And sort
0: of yeah, so I wanted to say the the, the actual
3: uh, you, you experience you have of these to do goods some yeah. activities and activities. Yeah, so that's right. Which are valuable, uh, but yeah. I, I'm not so sure about that. Uh-huh. that uh, if you do other things that are, uh, will have a good effect on, on on your adult life and also very pleas- pleasurable, I don't think it sort of matters much if the children are deluded, because they're inescapably. Table, I mean,
0: they're not deluded about everything, of course, they're right? They're I mean, they're ignorant they're, of certain things, but they're not. De- I mean, yes, but but
3: they're sort of more ignorant. They, they we all stumble in ignorance, yeah. but, uh-huh. but uh, to a greater extent, children, do <laughs>
0: say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get, Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, depending on how the example was characterized, I I I have to take different tack. I mean, if it if it d- doesn't involve the sort mm-hmm. of other goods that you think are are constitutive of a good, you know, of a a childhood in which you fare well then I would say I wouldn't be in favour of the of the machine that you're describing that you would be sacrificing the child's welfare for the future for the future adult welfare that's what it is
2: uh, We've got a line of people I think you are next then Mark and Jane, and Regina Yes, I just up from the question I wonder why not
4: expand it um, if we are interested in, in, in worthwhile enjoyments, why not expand that into worthwhile activities and relationships, you know, whether they're enjoyed or not and whether they're experienced or not. So if you think of a baby who's loved by its parents, yeah. you could say that baby benefits from, the, from the parents love uh-huh. before it knows it. Uh-huh. You know, the baby would not benefit from the parents just pretending to love it. You know, if both yes. mother loves it from the the baby will benefit from that. Um uh, because it's it's beneficial to be loved by someone even if you don't uh, ever get to know of that love. Um, why not look at, look at the way we look at, at, at adult lives? I mean, with adults, we don't think that people benefit if people just pretend to love them. We think that people benefit if people do love them. And we also think that adults, um, you know, as for full children, you know, can feel like their lives are going great, but uh, actually be worse off than people who realise their lives are going badly, for example, because they're acting badly. Um, so so why not include you know, worthwhile enjoyments you know, as part of a wider picture of worthwhile activities, worthwhile relationships, <coughs> including relationships that don't have any experiential component at all for, you know, for the,
0: um, the child. So is your thought just that if a baby is loved by its parents, independent of it's having any impact on its experience, that's good for the baby? Yes. In, just in, just intrinsically in good for way, it?
4: In the same way as if... Um, you know somebody's loved by their spouse, or someone's loved by, you know, their best friend, or whatever. You know that benefits them. Whereas if the spouse or best friend is pretending to love them, it doesn't. You know, uh, they don't get that benefit. Um, right. you know, benefit. We, we just can't reduce benefit to um, experiences, even worthwhile experiences.
0: Right. So I agree with that. So my idea was that it would. Ha- what you need is both the experience and the, and the, um, and the good together.
4: Yeah, being, being loved from afar. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, let's say you're, you know, you're, there's some war or disaster in your parents or yes. friend or whatever. You know, um, you could see that as the continuation of a valuable relationship, albeit without an experiential component in your
0: part. So, if someone loves me from afar, it's better for me, Except even though you I don't you know. why. Okay. And,
4: um, and 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 the if the feeling of being loved is experientially identical to the feeling of, of being loved when you're when people are just pretending to love yes. you, you, know, you don't get that benefit because there right. is more to this than how
0: you feel about it. Okay, so I agree with the last part. I just, I'm just i unclear on how something outside of my experience can affect my, my welfare. So um, if someone from afar loves me, even though I don't know it, and does nothing to impact me, it's hard for me to believe that that makes my life go better for me. So you
4: think until the baby knows about love, the baby only benefits instrumentally,
0: well, so that so so this raises the issue of whether or not the accounting defend could 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 be expanded to cover even you know infants uh, and things like that. It's not clear to me that you need to hold that the child has very high level attitudes about the nature of the good coming toward them. So they don't have to know a lot about, for example, play or about art or things like this to benefit from creating art or to benefit from from playing, seems to me. So if if that's the case, then someone can benefit from a loving relationship even though they don't really have robust attitudes about what that good is that they're receiving. Yes,
4: to me it seems odd, given that the parents may have very similar attitudes, that the benefit only kicks in the child. You know, the the minute the child responds not just with with some degree of pleasure but with actual love.
0: Well, so there so my, my mare, you yeah. the pleasure, you can say... Yeah, happiness, yeah.
4: You can know,
5: mm, you know, get yeah. child while it's asleep. Yes. Like, that doesn't benefit child. No. Okay, I think we've probably yeah. got the point <laughs> <of> <laughs> <a good laughs> to resolve okay. or disagree. Mark? Um, ah... Thanks, Julie. Um, thanks, Anthony. Just, um, uh, this is sort of a version, I think, of Ingmar's point, um, and, but without the, the technology. So I was, I was imagining a case where, which seems reasonably common, at least in my experience, where the, the setting of the scene for the activity, for the, the relevantly healthy developmental activity actually convinces the child that they're enjoying it. So so the idea where you keep telling the child, aren't we having a good time, aren't we having a right. good time? And it's <laughs> right. in the circumstances of and sure enough they're having a good time. Right, right so that uh-huh. so so this is the idea that you know that the happiness is a construction. So you talk them into
0: being happy. You talk. So, th- so right. they're actually
5: ha- they're actually having happiness. They're doing a healthy yeah. Yeah. developmental activity, and the question, whether or not they're doing well, you know, whether or not that's mean that's in their welfare.
0: Right. So the idea is that they have the good, they have the happiness, but the happiness is a function of some yeah. manipulation it's that you've. It's like yeah. some gaiety guy. Right. Right. So is, is so is your thought about what's then – so some people have said about these kinds of – well, there's the, there's, the, there's the sort of thing that's worthy of happiness, there's the subjective attitude, and then there must be a third thing, the connection between the two. So your thought is that, you know, it can't just be, um, you know, I take a pill – uh, and then I have the uh, good, whatever it happens to be, and then I, then I'm 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 faring well as a result. So your case is slightly different. The parent manipulates the child, you know, talks them into thinking that they're enjoying themselves, and they have the good. So do, do, the answer is, do I do I think they're faring well? I guess I want to say, in some sense, yes, because I think it's actually not clear you can fully manipulate a child in the way you can manipulate an adult. Partly because they don't have a fully developed will or a will at all. At, at the, at them, certainly at the very early stages. So if you're just kind of talking them into it, it might be okay if, if you're sort of saying, aren't you, you know, because you're saying, aren't you enjoying yourself in doing this? It's not as though it's, com- you know, completely uh, uh, disconnected from the thing that you're doing. Though I think if, if, if it was, I might have different types of attitudes
5: about it. I mean, like the, if the, rever- the reverse is actually also a good example. That, that, I mean, I would take this is a is that it shows that you can convince you so when they fall and hurt themselves yeah i mean how you react straight away will determine how they respond mean, if you expect them to cry they will and they'll be unhappy right i mean they they might show other signs of being in pain but they won't yeah right
0: so in, in Emile, Rousseau has these long, long discussions of like, you know, don't react to a child when they hurt themselves or fall down because this will just encourage them to cry. He says, if you leave a child in, the, in a room by themselves and they fall down, they won't cry because they, 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 they'll, they'll, they you know, they will bleed crying only it works when someone's around to react to them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just to, to a certain extent, I mean... Yeah, you you think you're you're in some sense manipulating them into enjoying an activity what, you know, which you think together with the uh, with with the uh, with the subjective attitude is one that makes them farewell. Yeah, I mean I don't, I don't I can't I I can't have too robust a view about the connection between these two things in, in young children. Maybe it's different for for, for other other uh, stages
6: that's a bit similar though in psychology when we get people
4: to smile actually biochemically they can change so that the smiling does the good even if they're unhappy Uh and in the same way if they're uh, coerced into being told they're happy or they're enjoying it then they may actually come to do that through the same similar kind of mechanism Uh
2: that's possible yeah okay so I think the line at the moment is Janet, Regina and then Bennett Mind you just a straight question? I was wondering how to apply the difference between these
6: theories and practice. I deal a lot with um, the children's hospital at Holman Street, and there are endless problems, debates between parents who think a child's life is worth living, living even if it's only suffering and it isn't going to grow up. Um, there are problems about whether if there's a low probability of the child recovering and going on to adulthood, it's worth all this pain in intensive care now. Hmm. I'm not sure how to apply any of those theories. That you're discussing so I mean, the
0: last case you took some. I mean, if, if if the idea is that you just do a straight cost benefit, you might say, well, the the child might not well because of the suffering but it's compensated for by the fact that in the future the adult will have a life that's worth living or may possibly uh, or, or may so possibly I mean obviously mm-hmm. we have to deal with prob- you know probability obviously <coughs> would come into the come into the picture um, the pain presumably in your case would be certain whereas the benefit would be only probable um, yes yeah, so, so there another we would yeah
6: relating to Ingmar's point supposing we could get intensive care so well organized we could put everyone on to experience machines right. so that instead right. of
0: being traumatized they have lovely yes. time yeah so, so well so right I, I mean I guess in that case you might say or I might say um, though that though they could not fare well they could at least be happy and that's in some sense better not necessarily better for them but better uh, than if they were to, to suffer right well better than
6: suffering think, obviously yeah, but yeah, what if yeah. it's the cost of Getting through to the end of intensive care is nothing but delusions. You then have to say their value was just their value as an adult. Yeah, I think that's their right. Childhood yeah. Completely gone. Yes,
0: I think that's right. And I think the person who 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 um, experienced that would probably say, "Well, I." You know, there's this notion of people losing their childhood to these kinds of these kinds of diseases. So I think they would would ex- be expressing the idea that they were unable to fare well as a child because of this.
6: But can any of these views provide an answer to these really difficult questions that we...
0: A definitive answer? Well, any kind of
6: answer, and how do they differ in the answers they would provide? I mean, would it help the people trying to make these decisions at Great Ormond Street to have heard your talk?
0: I'm not sure. Um... (laughs) Uh, I don't want to say yes or uh, yes. Yes, uh, that's. A, be, but um, I mean, certainly, if you if th- if you thought about what the different views were, you might think of well, how should we organize the individual child's life so as to try to help them realize as much welfare as possible? I mean, if you were if you were just a hedonist, you think well, if you if you could in some way um, uh, stop them from feeling the pain and produce the pleasure, then that would be sufficient. Whereas on my view, you might think, well, that's actually, um, you know, in some sense, that's, that's better than suffering, but it would be a case in which you wouldn't be faring well. So there might be something else you'd have to do to get the kind of activities involved, um, um, mm-hmm. them involved in certain activities. I, I, I was once hospitalized for a long time as a as a youth and my options were that I could be sedated for long periods of time or I could, um, I could do things. And so my father bought me this, uh, this magazine, which was about, uh, I grew up in Canada, which was about, uh, ice hockey. And I chose to, to, to engage in a kind of activity which they televised in which I talked about this magazine. So you might think, look, um, the right thing f- for the hospital to we'll do would be to, to, to give the option of having, um, you know these kinds of activities where you where I'm, we're doing something kind of valuable together with some kind of uh, subjective attitude. Um, that's the only example that I can think of.
2: Uh, but you, your into. view does have very radical implications for, for these sorts of actual cases because, if I understand it correctly, there are two necessary conditions. There's happiness yes. and doing some valuable activity. Yeah, that's right. So you've got this. So you've got to have both of those. So it's yeah. a very demanding account. Yeah. So for all of these kids sitting in hospital. That can't do anything valuable. Um, it doesn't matter whether they're happy or unhappy because that's not going to contribute to their to the, how well their life goes. So there's there's actually no point in making them happier because that's not making their life go better. Because you can't get them to engage in valuable activity. It's true, so, it's not so it's, it's, it's yeah quite, I, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's not making their lives go better be and worse for them.
0: But it may contribute to them having a good life. But, that, but, that, so, but what but
6: if they don't get through the childhood? What if Right. I mean, this is the equivalent of your sedation question. Yes. The parents think the life is worthwhile. Right. And we have to decide whether to treat the child or just let them die. Right. And all the experience they can have is going to be illusional sedation. Right.
0: Yeah, I guess I would say that's not that's not a a life in which they will be faring well. Maybe that's they're...
2: that's quite the opposite view is is actually the current one. If a child has some positive experiences, yeah. that's said to make. You know, the child's life is sufficiently good to you know, oh, yeah. continue medical treatment. See, so your your implication would be yeah. for all of these kids that will never yeah. engage in anything worthwhile. There's no point in treating
0: them. Well, so from the point of view of promoting their well-being, well-being might not be the only thing that we care about. We might care about things other than well-being. I think there you might uh, uh, might say, well, they can have some good, right? Uh, some aspect, care. well, some aspect of a, of a of a good life, which includes well-being but other things as well like happiness uh, and that's okay and moreover the, the the benefit of the type of view that I defend is that there's a reason for us to feel that that's not the fullest existence they can have they can have some happiness and that's that contributes something to the value of their life but not the kind of welfare that at least I'm thinking is is important. That's a reason to to, 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 to first of all, puzzle over the kinds of cases, but also to think that the, the person has got something that detracts from the value of their life, um, I think. Regina? Okay. Um,
7: so I'm wondering about the question you discussed in some parts of the talk was whether welfare is a different concept or in some ways a different concept for adults or for children. I'm inclined to think it because is. I'm inclined to think that for children, welfare is temporarily extended. In a way that it might not be for adults. So, if we think about a person who, say, at age 45 has a certain suite of cognitive abilities and social abilities and so forth, we check in on her again at age 55 and basically the same level. Um, I, it's consistent with that story that she's still faring well at age 55. But I think you check on a person at age 5 and then again at age 15 and they're still at the same level cognitive and, and social level of capacities. It seems to me like it's a mistake that to say this person's faring well. That, that by itself is constitutive of them having in some sense, um, now presently being in some sense, not fair and well. Um, it might be that they could fare worse or better than they presently are, but in mm-hmm. that sort of absolute sense, that there's a, a problem. And I think this is related to the idea that perhaps um, childhood is, is intrinsically like maturation of a developmental concept. Yes. It's something like a, a state that's aimed at approaching this other state adulthood, which was no longer development <coughs> no, no longer essentially development or, or maturational. Um, so I, I guess I'd be inclined to think that something like I don't know exactly what Kraut says, but hmm. something like this idea of developing capacities is, at least over time, a necessary condition on children's welfare.
0: Yeah, so 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 there is a sense in which it makes a difference to it and 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 certainly um, Developing things can be, you know, together with the with happiness, good for them. But I don't think that that's explained by the fact that they are developing. You see what I'm saying? Um, I mean, so sorry, you don't. Okay, okay. So so I guess I'm thinking developing things can be can be good for you, but they're good for you in virtue of what they are. So the expansion of an intellect. Um, the sophistication of some kind of playing, um, the, the the growth and deepening of a relationship—those things, right, together with happiness, are good for you. And and there's a sense in which they involve developing, but they're not—they're not. Their goodness does not lie in their being, in their development, in their being instances of developing. What their goodness lies in is what they are. That's my thought. So,
7: um, you don't think that that. Um, so, the, the contrast I drew in, in my question was between the idea of um, being in a certain state at 45 and 55, right. suggesting that the difference in, in welfare of those two states might really just be down to how good it is for you to have the capacities that you have. Uh-huh. But I was suggesting that there's there's if, if there's a contrast of 5 and 15, right. then they can't just be explained by the, uh, the goodness of the qualities themselves of those two points. It has to be explained by some concern about the idea that children ought to develop over time right. and if they don't they're in some way
0: worse off than they could be. Right. So the idea is if, the, if, if an individual child stopped developing, that would be bad for her. Yes. Okay. So um, suppose I agreed with that. Um, I might say well, part of the reason that they that are not faring well is that well they, they can't they can't in some sense as it were, you know, have the kinds of goods that I said would be necessary, like like robust forms of play, you know, uh, the relationships and things of that nature. Um, but I might take a different route and just say, well, I've like, I, 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 I mostly been talking about a view of welfare, so mm-hmm. I have a hybrid view of that. I don't have a hybrid view of w- ill fare or uh, faring poorly. I think there's a lo- lot, you can have a single thing and be very, like, you know, if, you're, if you're down in the dumps, I, I, my view is if you even if you have some goods your life is still going poorly uh, and vice versa you might have some some of the attitude but not have the goods and that might make your life worse for you um, so maybe in that category I could say well look if you're just not developing like guess if you're stunted or, or, or if you are not growing anymore that could be bad for you yeah but partly it would be explained for the fact that it would interfere with the, the acquisition so would be instrumental well, it could be intrinsically bad for you, not instrumentally bad for you. Could, it certainly would also be instrumentally, yeah.
7: yeah I guess I, I'm inclined to think it is. It is intrinsically bad, uh-huh. and that's, the, that's the explanation for this idea. Uh-huh. No change from 5 to 15 is by itself, in of itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Problem? Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Yeah. Uh,
1: Bennett, I think you would next. I uh, just was picking up mm-hmm. from Mark's point. I mean, I, I think that there is another way to see this sort of phenomenon when the child falls over and looks to the parents before deciding whether to cry or not. You guys were talking about it as though it was a manipulation for the parents to say, no, you're all right. Um, But I think that there is this other interpretation, which is that you are... uh, that that the way we feel pain in a kind of phenomenal sense is not innate. And in fact, what you're doing is you're teaching your child to either connect or not to connect. Uh, The sensation of pain and what it is uh, with, with sort of badness or unhappiness or kind of bad emotion. Uh, or you're trying not to connect it too strongly that way, right? So in fact, that the the way the kind of way you react will shape how your child grows up to orient to pain. And people have very kind of wide range of orientations to, to suffering and to pain in particular. Um, so it, it seems like part of what, what parents are doing then is, is they're sort of developing their child's ability to be unhappy. Uh, maybe a crucial part of of learning and development for children is to, feel, to learn to feel unhappy when appropriate mm. and yeah. to learn to feel happy when appropriate. And I, I just wonder if that... I mean, I think that supports the idea that you need a special understanding of welfare for children, but, but sort of doesn't that complicate the picture even further?
0: So it complicates it because you're in some sense, instructing an individual child in when to take happiness and unhappiness and things? Is that the other?
1: So, so to take a really kind of extreme and speculative <coughs> right. uh, uh, suggestion, you, you might think that if you really trained your child single-mindedly, you could raise a child who couldn't really feel unhappy in all sorts of appropriate situations. Right. Um, would, so they'd feel less yeah. unhappiness over the course of their lives. But you might just think that that sort of stunted them. Uh, but but on a kind of a, uh, you know, on maybe on your account of welfare, maybe you'd be doing them a favor.
0: If I brought about cases in which they feel less unhappiness? Yeah, that, yeah, to the point where yeah.
1: they really when a relative died or you know, right. or their aims were frustrated or, you
0: know. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, so, so is your thought that maybe some cases of. Sorrow are good for individual, yeah, intrinsically good for them. Well,
1: I don't know. Yeah, I don't have to say that. I just, I, I just think that you should have like a orientation to experience where you could come out of them feeling sorrowful. Yeah, or
0: yeah. yeah. That well, that might have. I mean, that might have good, good, um, right. Right. benefits for you uh, yeah. in in a, in a variety of different ways. Yeah. I mean, it
1: probably not in an yeah. way, but in no. A way.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly it would help you with your relationships. Uh, yeah. I think we have one last question.
6: Uh,
2: the lady
6: just there. Hi, it's Audrey uh, Catalan from National University of Ireland. Um, I'm wondering if you, your theory has an implied minimum threshold that children ought to achieve. And if so, who's responsible for that achievement? And
0: yeah, I don't have a view about the minimal Level of achievement. I'm not sure you can um, impose such a thing, um, but um, I guess antecedently, I'm committed to a kind of utilitarianism. So uh, I think that um, you know the the this, this the state and the ethos in which an individual lives should be designed to to try to promote as much of the child's well-being as possible. Um, I think, you know, it's not necessarily just the responsibility of parents, though I think they play an important role, but I think there are other things. I mean, so we have social welfare organizations that deal specifically with child welfare. I think those have to play a role. Um, yeah, I think, you know, lots of the views about what, what, who would we'll be responsible for would have to, you know, depend partly on what your moral view is and then partly what your uh, view of institutional design looks like. Uh, I'm not sure I, w- I could say a priori who's, who's responsible for it. I have a pretty good idea that parents, uh, are, you know, typically are, are, are most responsible for it together with other institutions, though that may, may not be true in every case.